The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Good evening to you. Glad you could join us. All right, so we come to our scripture reading, 2 Kings 25, please. 2 Kings 25, and we come to the end of 2 Kings, actually, with this chapter this evening. So, we bid a fond farewell to the first and second book of the Kings after a long while of being in them. 2 Kings and chapter 25. Now, it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign in the tenth month. Now, who is this? This is Zedekiah, mentioned in the last line of previous chapter. So in the ninth year of his reign, the tenth month, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. So the city was besieged until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. By the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the land that there was no food for the people of the land. So we're talking about in the tenth month, of the ninth year all the way to the fourth month of the eleventh year. That is a long siege. Very bad. Verse 4, Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of war fled at night by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city. And the king went by way of the plain. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him in the plains of Jericho. All his army was scattered from him. So they took the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah and they pronounced judgment on him. Then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah. So obviously the last thing he saw was the death of his sons. Bound him with bronze fetters and took him to Babylon. And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, King of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house, all the houses of Jerusalem, that is, all the houses of the great, he burned with fire. And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away captive the rest of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. The bronze pillars that were in the house of the Lord and the carts and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils with which the priests ministered the firepans and the basins, the things of solid gold and solid silver, the captain of the guard took away. The two pillars, one sea and the carts which Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these articles was beyond measure. The height of one pillar was 18 cubits and the capital on it was of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits and the network and pomegranates all around the capital were all of bronze. The second pillar was the same with a network And the captain of the guard took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. He also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war, five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief 
recruiting officer of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. Thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. Then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahikim, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. Now, when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Kareah, Sarai, the son of Tehumeth, the Netophathite, and Jeazaniah, the son of the son of Amakathite, and they and their men. And Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon. It shall be well with you. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the, the Jews as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. And all the people, small and great, and the captains of the armies arose and went to Egypt for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. He spoke kindly to him and gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. And as for his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. That was a, a quite a bit of a fast forward there from the captivity 586 to the 37th year of the captivity uh, when the king was, when this particular king was released. He had been taken captive before. Zedekiah, of course, uh, he didn't make it. Uh, he was taken out by Nebuchadnezzar for his rebellion against the king. All right, let's turn our Bibles back to the book of Acts and we're going to look at a little different uh, angle of things than we did this morning and in the prior sessions. And uh, I think we'll go to Acts 26 to start here. Acts 26, and we'll start at the beginning of the chapter. Paul is giving a defense, uh, his second or third major defense, um, actually maybe third or fourth now, but uh, he had to defend himself a number of times before the governor, governing authorities because of the fact that he was caught by the Jews in the temple and they falsely accused him. And so he was giving testimony to the word of Christ and God had promised him that you're going to go do the same in, in uh, Rome, but not quite just yet. He had to spend uh, about two years plus languishing in prison in Caesarea um, shortly. Uh, well, that was the longest point part of the time that he was in prison there in uh, Palestine, as we call it. He had been sometime in Jerusalem before that, just a very short amount of time before they uh, hurried him out of there to save his life from a plot that had been uh, hatched against him. But he's giving testimony and defending himself after he's appealed to Caesar for the resolution of his case because he didn't feel that he had done 
anything worthy of death. In fact, he was correct. It was only because of the hatred of the Jews that they put him in the place that they did. But he gives this testimony to uh, King Agrippa, who was uh, there observing to give assistance to the governor of the location to send word to the, uh, to the emperor. And in Acts 26, it says, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You are permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I am accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. They, know, they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. To this promise, our twelve tribes, earnestly serving God night and day, hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. What is this promise of which he speaks? What is the promise? What is the hope that he speaks of in this passage? To this promise are twelve tribes earnestly serving God night and day. Well, I think you get the answer in verse number 8. Why should it be thought incredible by you, speaking to the king, that God raises the dead? That God raises the dead. Indeed, he says, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, he's identifying with his audience. I was just like you are. I thought just like you. I thought these people are crazy, if not worse. They're heretics and they need to be destroyed. So the question that I wanted to raise this evening is, what is the promise precisely? And I think... We could say, well, it's just the resurrection of the dead and leave it at that and move on, but I think there's a little more to discover about the promise. He, he leaves it uh, fair, you know, defined only by this idea of the resurrection. Uh, and he, he has actually alluded to this idea before in his uh, defenses uh, before the Sanhedrin, for example, earlier on. And uh, let's see, he says in verse uh, chapter 23, verse number 6, this was in an earlier trial, this in Jerusalem, 23.6, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council. Now here, Paul's kind of causing trouble now. He, he knows exactly what the political lay of the land is. So... Um, you know, this would be like, you know, uh, what, what kind of illustration could I hatch right at the moment? You know, he's in a, a council with Democrats and Republicans, and he says, uh, let's see, the Sadducees are against resurrection, the Pharisees are for it, so, uh, you know, uh, I'm for tax cuts. And all the Republicans say, there's nothing wrong with this guy. And all the Democrats say, this guy's got to go, <laughs> you know. That's what he did. So, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. So, he's actually boiling down the gospel message 
into one of its major outcomes for us. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have the hope of the promise of God and resurrection from the dead. In other words, the great penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death, is overcome by Jesus Christ. Where, oh, death is your sting, He's taken it away. He's taken that sting away by making the promise of resurrection. And He has become the first fruits of that uh, of that resurrection, the, the Scripture tells us. Hebrews, uh, He broke the fear of death over us, the bondage that it held over us, and all of that. So we have this idea surrounding the resurrection. You think about that now. The table at which we celebrate tonight is a table which guarantees our resurrection. It's a table that symbolizes the work of Christ, which in turn guarantees our resurrection. Now, there are other places in the Bible that use this word promise, and I want to visit some of those this evening with you. Um, let's look at Luke 24:49. Just turn back a couple books in your New Testament, Luke 24. And what I'm going to try to do is build up a definition of the promise by looking at the different elements of the of the promises that God have made to us to just kind of flesh out that idea, to think about what God has promised us. And then after this, you're going to want to sing Standing on the Promises, right? <laughs> so, um, we, we are very appreciative of what God has promised and know that He is going to keep those promises. He is good to His Word and also He's able to keep them. I mean, it does seem incredible that God could raise the dead, Right? You see a dead body in the coffin in the church or in the funeral home and you think, there's nothing there. But that body was made as part of the image of God that He created for that individual person. Woven together in his or her mother's womb so many years ago. And God is going to use that body yet again. And, and you know, I mean, people think it's incredible or fantastical but they, people pretend more fantastic things all the time in the, in the, in the movies and in the, in the entertainment and, and, of course, in evolution. I mean, they think that life came out of nothing and we're saying life is going to come out of what was life before and it's going to come out of the author and, and giver of life, God and the Son, the Lord Jesus. So why would you think that's incredible? And if, if God created the heavens and the earth, there's no problem for him. And the first man, Adam, by the way, there's no problem for him and Eve to raise up some people from the dead. No problem at all. Luke 24. We're looking at the promise. Luke 24 and verse 49. It says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you have been endued with power from on high. Interestingly, my Bible has promises with a capital P. Hmm. Acts 1.4 says, Being assembled together with them, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, He said, you have heard from Me. And Acts 2.33, Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this, which you now see and hear. So, 
before, right at the ascension, the Lord says, wait for the promise. And then just days later, when the event Pentecost occurs, you have the Holy Spirit coming upon the, the disciples of the Lord and the promise is fulfilled. So wait for the promise and, and, and you will be endued with power from on high. This is the promise of the Holy Spirit. This promise was given in John chapter 7, given in John chapter 14, given in John chapter 15 when the Lord was in the upper room discourse with the disciples. And earlier at the feast, He, he cried out in the midst of that feast and, and uh, told people that if they uh, wanted to have rivers of living water flow from their inner man, that that would come if they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have that even today, as we've been recipients of this part of the promise. Uh, let's go to Acts 2.39 since we're there in Acts. Acts 2.38 actually I'll start. It says, Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. This is attached to the same promise, the promise of the Spirit. But notice now that it's connected to the remission of sins. That when you believe your sins are remitted, you're baptized to picture that. And you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, not at the time of your baptism, water baptism, but at the time that you receive Christ as personal Savior. When that happens, you also receive, you receive the promise of the Spirit, but you also receive forgiveness of sins. So, we're building up our kind of collection of ideas surrounding the promise. Resurrection from the dead. We have the promise of the Spirit. And we have the promise of forgiveness of sins. You add those three things up and chew on them for a while. Your mouth will be very full. These are great promises that God has given to us. Acts chapter number 7. This is not exactly along the same line, but just for completeness, I thought we'd visit it. Acts chapter 7, verse 7. And 17. Let's see if... Uh, yes. So, and the nation to whom they will be in bondage, Acts 7, 7 says, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve Me in this place. And verse 17 says, But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose who did not know Joseph. And then we, the, the text goes on to tell us about the history of the removal of the people of Israel from Egypt. And so the promise was, they're going to come out and serve Me. That's not exactly relevant to us because we're not captives in Egypt, but we are brought out of sin and serve God from there. Okay, so that's, the, that's a promise that's not directly connected, but it's interesting to know about anyway. Uh, Acts 13.23 Now here we're going to see a promise that connects to Israel. Acts 13.23 Paul is preaching in Antioch in Pisidia. 
first missionary journey, Acts 13, verse 23. And he tells them, from this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Okay, so what's he saying the promise is? Well, if it's according to the promise that a man's seed named Jesus was raised up, it must be that that's the promise. That's what it has to do with. Raising up to Israel a Savior, Jesus, according to the promise given in the context of David. Here he's speaking about David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. What promise would that be? Probably the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in which God promised a king to reign forever after David and his line over the people of Israel. Okay, so that is Acts 13 and verse 23. So we have the Holy Spirit, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the dead. Israel is going to have a Savior. All these promises. Acts 13.32, just later in that chapter, God says, And we declare to you glad tidings, the promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that, here it is, in that, here's the promise, He has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So He promised to raise up the Messiah after His humiliation into His exaltation. So now Jesus has been raised from the dead and with that, the promised program of God can come to fruition. Can come to full flower. Uh, let's see, where else can we go here? <clears throat> Acts 23. Oh, we looked at Acts uh, 23 already. We don't have to go there again. That's Paul claiming on to the promise of resurrection which keeps him going. Uh, wouldn't that keep you going too if you were in a situation where you face death? The promise of resurrection. Okay? Whether it's, you know, you're a young person and you're facing uh, terrible persecution, or you're an old person facing, uh, you know, your final days and hours on your deathbed, the promise of resurrection will keep you, keep you moving, so to speak. Yeah, even if you can't move your body, it will move your soul, move your spirit. The promise of the resurrection of Christ, which was fulfilled, which then guarantees as first fruits your own participation in that great blessing. All right, so we looked at uh, Acts 23, Acts 26. Let's turn our Bibles to Luke now, back to the beginning of Luke, because we're going to see a number of portions here that connect to this idea of the promise. Half a dozen or so points here under Luke 1 and 2. Just more kind of thoughts piling on to this idea of what the promise is all about. The record here reveals that the big picture of the Old Testament and what is reported is, is accurate to the Jewish hope and act, accurate to the actual promises that God made. And so we learn a number of things there. Look in uh, 117. 117. Zacharias is incredibly here speaking to an angel. Or maybe I should say the angel is speaking to Zacharias because Zacharias doesn't have a whole lot of uh, faith and a whole lot to believe or say here. But uh, 117. He will also go up before him. This is 
This is about John, the, the son of uh, Elizabeth and Zacharias. He will also go up before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so there's a promise here that a forerunner will prepare the hearts of the people to be repentant. And this promise is therefore integrally, integrally connected to salvation from sin. If See, remember, Malachi promises this. Isaiah, there's going to be a messenger that comes and he's going to prepare the way for the Savior. And how is he going to do that? Well, he's going to turn the hearts of fathers to children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just. What does it mean to turn the heart of somebody? It's repentance, exactly. That's what he's saying. He is preparing the hearts by preaching repentance. And isn't that exactly what John did? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He called to the the brood of vipers, the leaders. He said, do works worthy or befitting repentance. That is what... That is what the message of the gospel is: uh, repentance and f- repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls them to repent, and this promise in Luke is just saying what he's going to do. Now, what about Gabriel's message to Mary? Well, let's look at chapter one again, Luke verse thirty-one. Part of this promise. This promised program, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus, that is, Jehovah saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. There's a promise. How about that? You're going to have a son, you're going to give his name Jesus. He's going to be great. He's going to be the Son of God. God's going to put him on the throne of David. And finally, 33, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And then another promise of his kingdom, there will be no end. No end to that kingdom. So, you think of all those things that are just added up. He's exalted, Son of God, reigning on the throne forever. No end to his kingdom. And these promises reflect all the Old Testament prophecies that came before about a kingdom, about the Messiah, about the elevation of Israel among the nations again, an idea which most Christians, I think, either don't understand or they reject and say Israel's done, God's discarded them. But that's not the tenor of the plain reading of the Testaments of Scripture. Not at all. Uh, Luke one fifty four. Now, I have um, said we're talking about the promise of God and the promise program. What does this promise entail? What does it include? But not all of these verses have to use the word promise because you don't have to have the word there to have the idea there. Luke one fifty four. it says, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His seed, Forever. This is in the Song of Mary, or the Magnificat, as it's called. He uh, spoke to our fathers this way, to Abraham and his seed, and he's helping Israel. So God remembered his mercy in agreement with what he had promised before.
to the patriarchs about Abraham and his seed. Next, Luke 1.69. Now, Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and finally his tongue was loosed. Remember, he had gotten a little tongue-tied there after seeing the uh, angel and uh, was punished for his unbelief. Here's a priest, a priest of God who's not believing the word of God at the angel, at the voice of the angel Gabriel. So he did get a, a little bit of a harsh uh, consequence there for a number of months. 169, all the way through the end, almost the end of the chapter, are just loaded with the promises of God and that are going to be fulfilled in uh, this messenger and also in the Son of God. And he and it says, verse 69, and he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers. There's the word promise in, uh, in italics at least and to remember his holy covenant. The oath which he swore to our father Abraham Oath, that's like a promise, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. See, we're seeing these themes pop up again and again. Remission, there it is. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. <clears throat> so he recognized that in fulfillment of the promise of God, he was going to raise up a horn of salvation. You know what a horn is? Not like the kind you press on your steering wheel. The horn, a picture of, uh, of the animal horn. Think of a, think of a mighty bull or a mountain he-goat with those curled you know, ram's horn that just you can just imagine that ram just pounding his horned head into, a, into another animal to defeat that animal. That is power. That is strength. And so that is the horn of salvation, the power and strength that God is going to give uh, to exercise to save His people. That's... That's the arm of God, the very arm and power of the hand of God, if you will. John's role would be to prepare uh, people in a way that they would acknowledge their sins and be granted remission. So we've seen uh, Zacharias, we've seen Mary, we've seen Zacharias again, uh, Gabriel. What about Simeon, Luke 2? What did he know about the promises of God and the older revelation Luke 2, verse number 30. He's so happy because he's now seen the Messiah. He can go in peace. God's promise to him has been fulfilled that he would not die before he saw the Lord's uh, Messiah. For my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 30 says, which you have prepared before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Here's part of the promised program of God. He's going to lighten the Gentiles who sit in darkness. 
What a blessing for us who are counted among the number of the Gentile peoples. And uh, this salvation then extends to them. So the promise program about remission, resurrection, the Messiah, His kingdom, all of that, the Gentiles are participants as well. And then Acts 2.38, we won't leave out uh, the aged Saint Anna who was there being cared for at the temple and ministering there and serving and praying, fasting night and day. What a dedicated servant. I'm sure she was so glad to enter into heaven and be able to serve God in person, by sight, after those years of ministering there in that place. And it says she was 84 years old. That is an advanced age for that time frame. And verse 38 says, "...and coming in that instant..." Okay, there's, there's Simeon speaking of the Messiah. The parents are there. Jesus the baby is there. And "...coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of Him or about Him to all those who looked for redemption in Jerusalem." So she adds the fact that the Messiah will bring redemption to God's people. So, gather up all the loose ends that I've left you now. The promise of which Paul speaks, although focused initially in our minds on, on, on bodily resurrection, is broader than that. It involves resurrection from something to something else. It involves resurrection into what kingdom or what realm? What are you going to do when you're resurrected? And so he speaks of the broader promise program that includes the coming of the Messiah, redemption from sin, the kingdom, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, remember the coming of the Spirit, and resurrection from the dead. Acts 28, verse 20. One more here. I think that's all. <laughs> I know I've had you jump around here this evening. Acts 28, 20. For this reason, this is Paul speaking to the Jewish people who have come to him in Rome in his new prison there. He says, for this reason, Acts 28.20, I have called for you to see you and to speak with you because for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. For the hope of Israel. That's the promise that Israel expected to receive. That's their hope. That's the reason Paul is in jail. And I believe that refers to this broad idea of the promise program from the Messiah coming, dying, rising, being glorified, coming again, the kingdom, redemption, the ministry of the Spirit, resurrection from the dead, all of that stuff that we so often talk about in parts and pieces in the Gospel is there in the promise. In other words, for especially these ones that we've read, godly Israelites hoped for a kingdom of God on earth that was better than anything that they had had before. They hoped for the resurrection from the dead. Like one of those Old Testament saints called Job. Remember in chapter 26, I think it is, he said, I know from the standpoint of my flesh, even though I've been buried and the worms have eaten my body, in the standpoint of my flesh, I will stand and see my Redeemer because He lives. They hoped also, these godly Israelites, for the Messiah to rule over them far better than the human kings who had made a mess of things throughout the time period of the kings in the Chronicles, like Zedekiah, 
like Jeroboam. They hoped for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to be active in their nation. What was the Spirit going to do? He's going to come and indwell them. He's going to teach them the way to go. He's going to help them understand the law. He's going to give them regenerate, circumcised hearts. They're going to know the Lord from the least to the greatest. They'll see the glory of God. They hoped for unification. No more two kingdoms. No more two nations, but one. And dwelling in the land of Israel instead of division and diaspora, as it's called. You know that term, diaspora? The, the, the scattering of the Jews to the winds. To the four winds of the, of the heavens because of the judgment of God. They hoped for unification instead of division. Dwelling in the land instead of being scattered to the four winds. And the Bible promises that. God says in the prophets, I'm going to gather you from the north, the east, the south, and the west and uh, judge you and those who pass the judgment will be welcomed into the kingdom in Israel. So, the promise. The promise of God that Paul stood trial for and the promise that we look forward to is more than just uh, bodily resurrection like a me-centered thing. It's... uh, the whole promise program of God. And uh, we affirm that we believe that those things will occur. They are the hope that drives us forward. But not only that, they're the, they're the impetus for us to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ to those who are lost. Because we know He's returning. And because of the hope that we have, we find it intolerable that others do not have hope. Intolerable that they would not have hope. So we work to translate the Bible. We work to preach the Gospel abroad as well as here. I mean, think of it. Our our own countrymen, millions upon millions are ignorant of the things of God. Completely. They have no hope. They're without God in the world. They're separated from the promises, the covenants. They have, in effect even if they have houses and lands and riches, and they have nothing. They think they're rich, but they're blind and poor and naked and they need to repent of their sin. And so, I use this to both encourage us and also to exhort us to bring that message of salvation to others. Would that a million people would watch this and hear that and say, hey, what do I do to be saved? Um, and, and, and just let's think about that. Let's be grateful for that as we partake of the table tonight. We have wonderful promises of this promise program that we can enjoy and we can share with other people as well. So that is the promise. What is the promise? You kind of know now a little bit more about that. So let's rejoice together about it. Let me pray. And then I'd like to just uh, have us spend a, a couple moments in quiet reflection. And then we will partake of the elements here in the next few moments. Let us pray. Lord, as we begin our time of reflection for a few moments, I pray that You would quiet our hearts Remove, Lord, the distracting thoughts, the things that intrude into our minds. 
even the temptation that might come to pay attention to something else or to have some other desire or something other than to think on the Lord Jesus Christ and His work. To, as He says, to remember Him and His death for us until He comes. Lord, we, we pray now to prepare our hearts to receive the elements of the table and enjoy a celebration of that which Christ has done on our behalf. Help us not to treat the body of Christ lightly, not to, as Paul says, fail to discern the body. We're together in the metaphorical body of Christ. And Lord, I pray that each one of us is rightly connected to each of the others. We don't have any hardness of heart in our hearts. You know what's there. Search us out, Lord. See what is in us. If there be any wicked way there, cleanse it out. Convict us of it. Help us to turn away from it. Repent of it. And may this time be one that's profitable for the body at large as well as for our own spiritual development and walk with You. Lord, thank You that You've invited sinful people to come to Your table. Not that we revel in unconfessed sin or something like that. We believe we have confessed our iniquities and that we are not holding anything back in our hearts or hiding in our hearts something that should not be there. But Lord, there's only one kind of person that can come to this table and that's an imperfect, sinful person who falls short of the glory of God. Not a one of us is perfect. Not a one of us can claim to be owed a seat at this table. We thank You for Your grace that allows us to understand that in 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul told us, let a man examine himself and in that manner partake of the bread and of the cup. And so, it's not perfection, but self-examination that is called for at this table. And in that, we pray that You'll cleanse us. Remove, Lord, any wicked way from us. Draw us close to Yourself. Thank You for the promise that You have given the Messiah, redemption, remission, the Kingdom, the coming of Christ, and the resurrection of Your people from the dead. In Jesus' name, Amen.